Nice. Yes. Also, thanks for stealing pictures off Facebook. It's pretty spectacular. I was about 20 pounds lighter then, um, but I'm getting back. Fighting weight's coming. It's all good. Uh, how many of you are seniors in the room about to be done done? Like, get out. I mean, in a good way, like in a good way. And juniors stepping up, sophomores next year, or now, sorry. And who's freshman in here? Oh, man, freshman. Okay, awesome. Hey, um, I am excited to be here. I was actually scheduled, I think it was, was it January or something? I don't even remember now. Uh, got sick as a dog and had to skip, so I'm so glad it worked out to get here before the year was over. And uh, really a privilege, counted a privilege to be with you all. And uh, I hope and pray uh, in the short minutes we have together can be an encouragement to you. As this year comes to a close, I can't believe uh, another year is winding up for you, which means another year is winding up for my kiddos. I have three uh, kids. I have an old my oldest daughter, an old daughter. My oldest daughter is uh, 17. She'll be 18. She just ver uh, visited Furman uh, last week. And, um, and she loves it, loves the campus. We've grown up around here. She's grown up around here. I grew up in Ohio, moved here 15 years ago to help start Summit Church and uh, love it and call this place home. All my kids know this place is home for the most part anyway. Uh, she's 17. I have a middle daughter who just turned 15 and a son who's 12, and he comes with me to every home soccer game. I saw on Twitter today that your golf team won the SoCon, so kudos to the ladies. Ladies, it was the ladies' golf team. I think it was the ladies' golf team. Uh, love coming to soccer games, been to a bunch of basketball games. My heart was on the table when that shot went in. Uh, I know, it's fine. You're allowed to still grieve. Grief doesn't play fair. You can grieve that. Um, I have not yet been to a football game, so, you know, if you're a football player, I'll come cheer you on. I'll, I'll do it. Um, is that you? Are you a football player? I'm in. All right, let's do it. Let's make it happen. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm excited either way. So... <laughs> hey, listen, if I have 15 minutes or so of your time and you're getting ready to walk into another season of life this summer, jobs, uh, going back home, some of you going to travel, some of you taking new opportunities that you didn't expect, some of you going back to a place that's very familiar, I just thought about what would I want to share. And part of the thing I want to share, part of the question I want to ask you is, I want to start with a question then kind of unpack that together for just a few minutes. And the question is simply this. Do you believe Jesus is excellent? Do you believe he's excellent? And I don't mean like, um, I don't mean necessarily like that, that he's just something that you stare at and behold, because he's a lot more personal than that and intimate than that. Uh, although I think beholding him is a really beautiful thing, and the psalmist tells us it's the one thing we need more than anything else in life. Psalm 27, my mother and father could forsake me, or I could have an army camped outside my door ready to take my life. I need one thing in life, the psalmist says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. But what I mean is, do you think that the excellency of Jesus has anything to do with your life? And if you're heading into a next season, if you're a senior getting ready to start something brand new, if you're uh, an underclassman, you're getting ready to go to work all summer, you're going home all summer, you're trying something new all summer, you're going to travel all summer, whatever's in front of you. The question is, is that the primary thing you're waking up for tomorrow? Is it the reason that you're going to keep on going? You just got another thing to do. You got college to finish. You got another task to perform. You've got another job to work. You got another adventure in front of you. And all of those things are right and good and beautiful in their own way. But maybe, just maybe, all of life was intended to have something of greater primary significance as to why you get out of bed in the morning 
And if that's the case, then I think there's a power to, to seeing that. There's a beauty to seeing that, which actually then starts to inform all the other opportunities and decisions and relationships of your life. And I, I believe with my whole heart has the potential then to bring greater joy to all of those things, greater beauty to all of those things. And so I'm going to rob some of Peter's language. The Apostle Peter from 1 Peter, if you want to turn there, you can. We're going to go to chapter 2 for just a moment together. And I want to see something that Peter says about who we are, how we ought to live, and why it matters. And as you get ready to finish this year and think about relationships that are out ahead of you, opportunities out ahead of you, jobs out ahead of you, family out in front of you that you're going to go interact with and and be closer to, or whatever is next for you, I think what Peter says here has a very translatable, um, powerful, and meaningful purpose behind it, and I just want to share it with you. Um, before I do, I want to pray, and I just want to ask that the Lord would allow us to have some time to, to truly hear what He has to say through His Word. His Word is what has power, and that we would hear from Him, be changed by Him, and then not die. <laughs> That's all. If we do all three of those things tonight, it's going to be one heck of a night. And what a finale it'll be to FCA 2022. All right. Father God, we love you because you first loved us. You took all of the righteousness and obedience of your son, Jesus Christ. And for those who by faith have put themselves uh, in, in, in a desire to be known by you, to follow you, to give ourselves to you and throw ourselves on your mercy and grace. You cover us in his righteousness and his obedience. You take all of our sinfulness and all of the stains of shame and guilt and all the disobedience of our lives. And you made a way of salvation and reconciliation to you through your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be covered in his righteousness and then enjoy getting to grow up and mature in that righteousness and live in obedience to you and discover that obedience to you doesn't lead to you trying to rule and control everything just because you want to control everything, but it actually leads, according to your word, to great joy, the kind of joy that can only come from you and the kind of joy that actually overwhelms and completes us. And so we just pray that you would help us to understand you are trying in your word, through your spirit, as we give ourselves to you, you're trying actually to fight for our joy, to contend for our joy in you. And I hope we'll see that tonight through your word and uh, because of your kindness. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Peter, uh, he gets a bad rap because he was really zealous and he was always getting in some trouble. Um, but the fact of the matter is there is a lot to commend uh, to you about Peter. Peter was a remarkable person. I was just you know, we celebrate Easter Sunday and uh, we were looking briefly in Luke's gospel for just a moment on Sunday morning. And I love it. Like when the women come and report what they were given by Jesus and the angels to report to the disciples. It says that they were all doubting, like they were all confused and all doubting, not Peter. It says Peter just got up and took off, right? And so Peter is writing now post Jesus's resurrection, post the power of the spirit that has come. And he's writing to people who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're being persecuted because they identify as someone who's following the way of Jesus. And he says, hey, listen, it's going to keep coming. And as it comes, there are some things you need to remember. One, you need to remember that you are who you are because God loves you and he set his affections upon you and he blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. He gave you everything you need in Christ Jesus. And then he sealed all of that with his Holy Spirit as a promise to himself and to you that he will finish what he started in you. He will complete the work that he has given 
himself to in your life. So God is recreating us because of the good news of the gospel. Those are things we just celebrated this past weekend, things I hope you've talked about and celebrated all year long. But Peter reminds his readers of that all throughout chapter one. This is who you are. This is who God has made you. This is what God's doing in and through you. You have at your disposal inexpressible joy. What an amazing phrase. You have inexpressible joy, full of glory, in the relatedness that you have to the creator of the universe because he gave his only son for you so that you might actually have eternal life. And on that basis, he comes to chapter two and he says, hey, if that's who you are, if you're a new creation in Christ, if you are one who is following the way of Jesus, if you're enduring trials and suffering and persecution, here's how you hold on. You grow up in who you are. You grow up in the identity of what is actually true about you because of Jesus. You live in light of that reality. And then you proclaim that reality everywhere you go. It's who you are. It's how you ought to live. And it's why it all matters. And when he gets to chapter two and verse nine, he uses just the most profoundly beautiful language to put all of that in a very succinct form where he says, hey, I want to remind you yet again, everything I've been talking about, I just want to say it to you again. And it starts in verse nine to really pick up with this. Who are you? How ought you to live? And why does it matter? Verse nine says, but you, you who are in Christ, you who have been made new by God's grace and his mercy, you who have said, I cannot on my own ever achieve being reconciled to God by being good enough. I needed you to do something about it. And to my great supply, uh, surprise and pleasure, you did everything necessary through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. To you, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, which actually echoes Exodus 19. This has been God's plan for his people since the very beginning. God made a promise in the beginning. He kept that promise, continued to keep that promise. Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. Every promise God has made finds its yes in Jesus Christ. And here Peter is calling their attention back to the history of God's faithfulness, despite all of their faithlessness, to say once you were a people who had no direction, no identity and no God, and now you are the people of God by his sheer grace and mercy. Verse 11, beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning this is not your ultimate home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage more war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We'll stop there. I think Peter is doing something really, really helpful and it's helpful for me, and it's helpful for you, because he's starting to give definition and meaning and purpose and value to why you breathe. Do you know we do something profound every night, something remarkable every night, most of us. Maybe next week, is it next week that's finals or the week after? You'll do less of this then. You'll do less of this then. But every night, for the most part, most of you sleep. Or at some point in the day you sleep. And some of you sleep like five or six hours and that's all you need to function. And a lot of you sleep a lot longer than that. And that's okay. 
When you sleep, you either consciously or unconsciously acknowledge that you're not in control of the world. You just bow out. Every night, we bow out and acknowledge we don't control everything. We don't keep the world spinning. We don't control our own lives and our own destiny. We don't have it all mapped out. We're not the ones driving everything and holding everything together. The whole world keeps on doing what the whole world needs to keep on doing, not because of you or me. We checked out. As a matter of fact, we don't just check out. We think about other things while we're checked out. So there's this acknowledgement that something's going on that when you wake up in the morning and you have breath in your lungs and you have a, a task or an opportunity or a relationship or a connection or something in front of you, there's got to be more than just that at the table. Like, why did you wake up? Why is there breath in your lungs? And Peter says, I think everything that I'm trying to say to you is to remind you, you have a divine distinction about your life, particularly when you are in Christ. Everybody has a divine distinction about, about them in life because we're image bearers of God. You have value and dignity and worth in this world because you're made in the image of God. But Peter goes on to say there is this, he says it later in his epistle, you have the opportunity to be a, a partaker of the divine life. You, who are in Christ, have been invited to share in the life that the Father and Son and Spirit share in, to be a participant in the work of God, in the kingdom building of God's new creation that is going to come. You have the potential to do things that will last through the fire of judgment and live for eternity to God's glory. And when you take a breath in the morning, you didn't just wake up. You got woken up and given life and sustained life again, and air in your lungs again, and muscles that are working again, and a brain that's functioning again, because God said, I still have plans for you that are actually in purpose with what I have designed for my people since the very beginning. So Peter uses these descriptors. First, your chosen race. Your chosen race. He says, every identity marker that was yours Prior to this moment, in Christ Jesus, know this. You are uniquely one people unified because you were chosen by God. That's who you are. You are a people of God's own choosing. That is a distinction that no one can take away from you because God himself has set his affections upon you. Secondly, you're a royal priesthood. This also echoes... Uh, Exodus 19, where God says, I'm going to make my people into a kingdom of priests. They're going to mediate my presence in the world. But that's really just going back to his desire and creation that you and I would be in right relationship with him and we would be his representation in the world. We would be people who reflect his glory and bend his glory into every caveat of earth because we would be people who multiply image bearers. And so we are in relationship with God, but we also become his representation. And Peter comes back and says, hey, you are people of God's own choosing. And God is actually mediating something about who he is, the nature and character of who he is, and mediating something about the good news of what he's doing and demonstrating through you, that's his plan, through you to show the world who he is. That you are a people in service to a king for the sake of others. And not just any king, a king who was willing to come and, and be and live among you and give himself for you. Thirdly, you're a holy nation. You're a people set apart and distinct from all others while also living among them. 
So you are a people who have been set apart by God in relationship to him to be his representation in the world wherever he has providentially or sovereignly put you. While living in the midst of all others, you are to live in a distinct way. I would say divinely distinct way. And then lastly, you're a people for his own possession. You're not of your own. He ransomed you. He bought you with a price. The price to cover sin and redeem your life and mine came at great cost to God, but offered freely to us. Why? Why would God do all of that? Recreate you and I from the inside out, right? I mean, we weren't just broken. We didn't need just a little rehab or rehabilitation or a little bit of, uh, of counseling and help and a pat on the back. That's not who we were. According to Paul, we were dead in our sin. We had no way of saving ourselves, no way of rescuing ourselves. And so God comes to us when we wanted nothing to do with him. According to Paul in Romans, we were his enemies, as a matter of fact. He comes to us dead in sin when we want nothing to do with him. And he says, I will come to you. I'll make the way for you. Why would God offer to you and I a way to be completely made new, restored to him in right relationship, and now be invited again to participate in representation of him? Verse 9, so that we might proclaim His excellencies. Peter explicitly says that God has chosen us, redeemed us, ransomed us, bought us back, created us new in and through the power of His Spirit at work within us, growing us up and maturing us into the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that we might demonstrate and tell the world of His excellencies. So that we might actually speak specifically about how wonderful it is, how amazing it is to be brought from darkness into light, from death into life. To echo the story of redemption in every area of our lives. One author said it was so that we could declare just how precious and excellent and remarkably beautiful Jesus truly is. There is now something tangible in the way that you and I ought to view and live life that God intended would actually have a staggering effect on the people around you. So just hear this for a second. What if, what if God designed for you was wherever you go next, for the next three months or the next three years or the next 30 years, that everywhere you go, He was intending all along to keep making you a person who bears the marks of the gift of grace he's given you and the staggering righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, so that people all around you would have access to the gospel without having to come or go anywhere. What if maybe just maybe the goal was not to get you to, to be renewed or recreated so that you could invite other people who aren't Christian, who don't know God, who haven't been saved, whatever the words are you use, who don't follow Jesus, who are far from God, you can invite them to church and let somebody else talk to them about Jesus. Now, don't hear me wrong. You can invite people to church all day long, let other people tell them about Jesus. But maybe, just maybe, God's so with it and He's so intentional and He's so meaningfully purposeful in your life that He designed it that those people would have access to, they would have access to the gospel through you through you declaring the excellencies of Christ, through you living like a transformed person, through you actually relating to them and being kind to them and loving them and engaging them in conversation and listening to them and explaining to them the truth of His Word. Do you know in Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching a sermon to the people in Athens and he says that God created or determined the periods of time and the boundary places of our dwelling, that God intended 
that you would be alive now where you are. That it's not an accident that you're here tonight, not an accident that you live here, not an accident that you go to school here, not just some random chance, but God actually determined the periods of time and the boundary places of your life. So maybe, just maybe, as you are here, as you leave here, as you go this summer, the people God's bringing into your life at the grocery store, at your house, in your neighborhood, at your job, and every trip you take, maybe, just maybe, they were intended to be intersecting with your life so that they would have an accessible expression of the gospel and the power of the gospel to relate to, to interact with, to see, to touch, to understand, to know, and to to actually have the opportunity to respond to Jesus without ever having to come or go anywhere. I think that's what Peter's getting at, that you and I would live that way. So then he goes on, how ought you to live? You should live in such a way that through the help of the Spirit, you abstain from the passions of the flesh, keep your conduct honorable among those who are separated from God, i.e. Gentiles in the context he's writing. You live a life of divine distinction. You live in such a way that every category of your life is overwhelmed by Christ's sufficiency. And you are being purified and your sins are forgiven and your old desires that once hindered love and are now being replaced with new desires. And you are the one who's been reborn by the living and abiding word of God. And the Holy Spirit is in you, dwelling within you and changing you from the inside out. So the very image and character of God begins to spread through your life and be demonstrated in power through your life everywhere you go. And people start to see the staggering reality that something's going on in you because God's at work. So Peter just says, hey, who are you? You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How? The way you live and the way you speak and the times you choose not to speak, the way you serve and the way you love and the way you give and the way you continue to give and the way you serve and don't expect anything in return and the way you love because it's what's good and the way you share truth, but you share it with grace and the way you are gracious and gentle and kind, but you're also willing to be honest and truthful. And Peter starts calling on those realities because he says, you've been given new birth, new life, and you have a new story to echo in every phase and aspect and part of your life. So why does all of that matter? One, because he's proclaiming his excellencies, yes. But two, because he says the way in which you live actually gives people access to see something about who he is. So what if Jesus really is excellent? And what if when you do get out of bed in the morning and there's breath in your lungs, the primary reason you live and the primary reason you'll do well at school and the primary reason you'll work hard at your job and the primary reason you'll fight for relationships that matter and the primary reason you'll look for ways to serve and be kind and the prior, primary reason you'll live as a generous person and the primary reason you'll try to um, show honor and kindness to people who are made in God's image, all of those things that would be characteristic of a person who follows the way of Jesus, your reason is because you go, I want him to see that he's excellent. I want him to see him. Because somehow Peter says, you could live in such a way that they may hate you and accuse you of doing evil, but they wouldn't really know why. One pastor said, to live a life of divine distinction in Jesus Christ might make the world hate you, but they would constantly have a hard time figuring out why. I think Peter's culminating message says to you in this unique season of your life nothing you now do in god's name for his glory 
is futile. Instead, everything has eternal significance. Uh, let me put just a few practical categories on it real fast. You've got friends. Some of you have friends. Some of you, you're working on it. Okay? It's coming, I promise. If God grants you good friends, friends who actually stick close, who care about you, who are there when it's hard, and who celebrate when you have wins. <laughs> if God grants you good friends, they're not to be used to get what you want, but rather to grow in grace together and to realize that there is a joy that is insurpassable in living this life, not in isolation, but in meaningful connection with others. If you work, the gospel allows you to see that work is not the result of sin. Work was here before sin. Work is not the result of sin, or it's, uh, it's also not a curse to be endured, but rather it becomes a means to show the world the creativity and the ultimate designer and practice in the sharing of his kingdom, rule, and dominion over all the earth. That means all of your work can have eternal value, and that means you can be the kind of employee who says, every good gift God gave me in talent, in, in wisdom, and in ability is used as a, as a means by which I show people something about the greatest designer, the most loving creative designer to ever design and work this earth. And I get to say something about him how I, in how I do my job. You can do that as a teacher, a doctor, a mechanic, and uh, fill in the blank. Time. Time is not pri primarily mine to be spent or wasted however I please, but it's to be managed and used for the good of others and for God's great purposes. Money. Money's not my worth or my value. It's my grateful reception of God's generosity, and it dignifies a way that I am now able to bless others and extend his gospel into the whole world. My body is not my own. My health and my body are not my own to be abused for my good pleasure. They were bought with his precious blood. They're sustained by his kindness and they're used for his good purposes. And so if he gives me a body, I fight to take care of it because he gave it to me. And every good gift I have, I have from him. According to Psalm 16, verse 2, I have no good thing apart from him. I'm school, my school, my education, and while you're here, it's not just a dreaded task to be merely attended or survived or completed. It's a mission field to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to people who are far from God and to do it with truth and, gra truth and grace and always lead the way with love. And if God lets you marry, <laughs> anybody married yet besides the two lovely people who lead this ministry in the back? Anybody else already tied that knot? <laughs> cool, good. Um, <clears throat> If God allows you to marry, it's not just a friendship to maintain if it feels good or continues to benefit you. The gospel reshapes marriage to be a covenant of gospel reenactment to be protected and purified through loving self-sacrifice. And it tells a story unlike any other if it's lived the way he intended. And if God, by his kindness, gives you children, they're unbelievable and exhausting but they are so much more than your validation or the legacy that you leave or the, or the contribution you're making to the world. They are image-bearing gifts of God's grace to be enjoyed and nurtured and matured into His likeness and released in both their successes and, and their failures to show the world that He is full of grace and mercy. And He is writing a story in time and history that Nothing else in this world compares to. And the truth is, the reason the gospel is so powerful, the reason this identity of who you are and how you ought to live and why it all matters, matters with everything you do, 
It matters with everything you do. The list goes on and on and on of all the things we could say are transformed by the realities of the gospel. It matters because God's not done. If he were done redeeming people to himself, guess what? New heaven, new earth, this is over and we go. But if there's still breath in your lungs and the world's still spinning, that means God either wants to redeem you, he's given you the opportunity to respond to the gospel and the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price on your behalf and died the death you and I should have died so that we could actually receive the gift we could never achieve. Or he's actually inviting you to participate with him in inviting people into the glorious good news of what it means to come from darkness and go into light. He wants to use you for that. You don't have to work at a church for that. He wants to use you wherever you go with whomever you're around. He wants them to have access to the gospel through your life. You demonstrate the power of the gospel. You speak its good news. You love people. You serve people. You show kindness to people. You tell truth to people because that's exactly who God is in you. Now coming up and maturing, showing through you because that's what he wants. He intended the whole time. I would have done it different. I would have done some big, beautiful writing in the sky that just makes everybody understand who he is, bow down and worship him, right? Like there's, there's, way, there's times where I go, really? You want to use me? You want to use that guy? <laughs> and God's go, yeah, I want to use my people made in my image, redeemed in my son to change the world. That's my plan. And I'm going to do it until I'm done. And you take breath in the morning so that you can proclaim his excellencies. Uh, the band's going to come back up, I think. We're going to sing again. And as they come back up, I just want to read something over you as a prayer. It's, um, it's by an author named Michael Reeves. He wrote a book called Rejoicing in Christ. And uh, he says this about Jesus. And I would love for you to just close your eyes. There's nothing spiritual, super spiritual about closing your eyes. I just don't want you to be distracted. I'd like to read this over you. And I would love to hear you. I'd love to have you hear how he describes the excellency of Jesus Christ. And I just ask, would you just let it read over your own heart and mind tonight? And would you ask yourself, do I believe Jesus is excellent? Am I living like he's excellent? Am I proclaiming that he's excellent? And do I believe... God actually wants the world to know that Jesus is excellent in and through me. This is what he says about Jesus and his incomparable depth and beauty. He was a man with towering charisma running over with life, health and healing, loaves and fishes all abounded in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds thronged round about him, men, women, children, sick and mad, rich and poor. They found him so magnetic some wanted just to touch his clothing. Kinder than summer, he befriended those who were hopeless and lost, and he gave hope to all of them. The dirty and despised found that they mattered to him. His closest friends found that the Son of Man, as, he, as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with a bridegroom at a wedding. Yes, he was a man who felt a world of pain, yet who abounded with joy. Generous and genial, firm and resolute, he was always surprising, loving but not soppy. His insight unsettled people and his kindness won them over. Indeed, he was a man of extraordinary and extraordinarily appealing contrast. You could not make him up if you tried, for you would make him only one or the other. He was red-blooded and human, but not rough, pure, but never dull, serious with sunbeams of wit, sharper than cut glass. He out-argued all comers, but never for the sake of the wind. 
He knew no failings in himself, but was transparently humble. He made the greatest of claims for himself, yet without any arrogance. He ransacked the temple, spoke of hellfire, called Herod a fox, and called the Pharisees painted corpses. Yet never do you doubt his love for you as you read his life. With a huge heart, he hated evil. He felt for the needy. He loved the Father, and he loved people. And you look at him and you have to say, Here is a man truly alive, unwithered in any way, far more vital and vigorous, far more full and complete, far more human than any other. You could not make him up. You would never imagine him as as beautiful as he actually is. We would not be able to create the perfect paradox of his characteristics. He so excellently weds them all together in one unified person. He is the most excellent thing to set your attention and affections upon. There is literally no lack, no gap, no fault, no blemish, no spot, no inadequacy, no deceit, no pride, no sin within anything that he is or says or does. He is genuinely, incomparably preeminent, supreme, and satisfying. He is excellent. And you and I have been called to proclaim His excellencies. What a gift. What a gift you have as this year closes. And what a privilege to wake up by God's grace tomorrow and divinely partake in building His kingdom by proclaiming the excellencies of His Son who brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light. I love you. I do. I'm praying for you. I pray for this campus and this college, university, sorry, all the time. And I believe this summer, God will take some of you on a journey you never expected. And He's taking you there so you can say something about the excellencies of His Son, Jesus Christ. Go enjoy it. There's nothing like it.